Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us this week. Our guest this week is Brian Schroeder. He writes for Hardwood Paroxysm and Bulls by the Horns. We talk originally about the Chicago Bulls and their future, along with Thibodeau and Noah, their potentially intertwined futures, as well as the Eastern Conference playoff picture. And we also get into the role of ownership and management and decisions and how that affects the Bulls and every other team, and some broader NBA issues as well. Loved having him on. Conversation runs about 40 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Mm -hmm. We've had a really interesting run for the Bulls, and I think it's finally starting to get more in the national consciousness with the win against the Heat. How would you describe how this team has played since they traded Dang? I would describe it as Joakim Noah putting a rocket on its back and tying everyone else to his neck and launching himself to the moon. It's really... Him and, and Thibodeau just going out. They don't care. They don't care what anyone thinks they're going to do. They don't care what even their management thinks they w- would have done. They're just going all out, I guess, is the best, safest term. And they've gotten quality contributions from other players, even mm-hmm. though the you know the offensive stats, if you want to call it, aren't there. But they, they've you know Jimmy Butler, when he's been healthy, has played the defense pretty well. Mm-hmm. And Taj, I think, has been a really underappreciated part of how good this team is as well. Well, Taj has been fantastic, but... Whatever offense they have is run almost entirely through Noah but at this point. He's averaging like seven and a half assists since the All-Star break, something like that. I mean, Kirk Heinrich, the nominal point guard, is averaging like three and a half, and he barely, he's just a spot-up shooter. He's actually played pretty well. But yeah, Gibson, Gibson's been fine. Actually, he's been more than fine. He's been fantastic. But I'm not sure he'd be able to get these shots he's getting without Noah. So it's, it's really just, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it, it starts with Noah, it ends with Noah. If he gets hurt for any length of time, they're done. Like, they're just done completely. So then that goes into one of the more interesting discussions that's been floating around recently, which is putting aside the top two guys in the MVP discussion. I think that that's its own thing. There's a really interesting conversation in terms of who should be considered and who actually is the number three person in that, in the MVP discussion. Do you think Noah fits that bill? I'm not going to say he's not if someone wants to say he's the third guy, I'm, I'm not offended by it in any way. I think you got to look at Blake Griffin, Steph Curry, Goran Dragic even, or with him. They've all been incredibly important to their teams, and Dragic has played magnificently. It's looking even worse and worse that he wasn't an all-star. But uh, like Harden's a guy, Paul George even, he, he slipped, he's still there. Still had a great year. But yeah, I mean, Noah, Noah's been, like I said, if he's, if he's, if they lose him, they're done. I think that's fair definition of most valuable player. There's no chance of winning it, but third place, I'm fine. I, I have no 
qualms with that. I think it's fair. And what's been interesting about it is that a series of the guys, especially the ones that you mentioned at the top, which are close to my list as well, is that we've seen them play mm-hmm. without guys that we thought were pivotal on their teams. Dragic without Bledsoe, mm-hmm. Blake Griffin without Chris Paul, uh, Noah without almost everybody else. <laughs> And that the teams have done so much better than we thought. And when we're talking in the, about the Western Conference guys in particular, they've done it against competition that hasn't let up. You know, this isn't a situation where they got lucky necessarily. It's a situation where they the teams maintained, or at least close to maintained, a level of play while losing substantial pieces. Yeah, uh, Dragic is the best example of that. I mean, for the first two months of the season, Bledsoe was, not Bledsoe was the guy that people were talking about. I mean, not seriously, because it was two months into the season, but he went down, and, and, and Dragic has just been unstoppable since then. I think the more interesting conversation with, especially guys like him, because he has no shot at MVP, are would he make an all-NBA team, one of the three? I, I would assume Dragic has to by this point, but I guess Chris Paul will probably make the first team out of virtue of being Chris Paul, and Curry's probably there. Tony Parker, I mean, point guard is, is a tough position, but then again, the, there's not really point guard. You know, there's two guard spots on the All-NBA team, so I'm sure you could slide Dragic over. Yeah, I think that with the idea of there being six guard spots and the crazy thing that the Eastern Conference might have maybe one guy of those six is that I think that in an ideal world, I think Dragic makes it. I think that he gets on one of the teams probably, I'm trying to think, probably maybe second team, maybe third team, depending on how everything shakes out. And it would be a real shame for him to not get that recognition, even if the Suns don't make the playoffs. And, you know, it's it's going to be tough for them, but... Considering the talent that they're rolling out at the perimeter spots, they're like, you know, Gerald Green and P.J. Tucker and all those guys, you know, they're playing well. Gerald Green's had some crazy outbursts recently. But to take a team like that in a stacked Western Conference to the playoffs would be quite the accomplishment. I've been expecting them to fall out for a couple months now, but they haven't. They, they're still beating teams. They beat Thunder in a ridiculous game. They, they've been. They almost made. They've been almost made that comeback on the Clippers. They they've been hanging tough. They, they they haven't fallen out yet, and we've only got a month or so left in the regular season. So at some point, we're gonna have to accept that they're a playoff team. Uh, yeah. And Dragic should deserve credit for that. I mean, I don't know who else to give it to. Yeah, I mean, Hornacek gets some, but I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think that Hornacek's done a great job, and Dragic has been absolutely huge for them. And being able to see Dragic in person, because they played the Warriors a couple days ago, the impact that he has on their offense, and when he can also, when he can generate opportunities when it seems like nothing is there, that's incredibly important to a team like the Suns. Yeah, he's one of the craftiest, cleverest dribblers in the NBA. Chris Paul still probably holds that crown, but... He gets around picks and navigates so well with his dribbles. He got his one of the best in-and-out dribbles, I think, in the sport. And it, it took him a while. I remember he couldn't really dribble when he first came into the NBA. He was trying to be a spot-up shooter. and didn't really work for him. He didn't really have a role. I don't know if it was leaving Phoenix, playing in Houston for that year. He played pretty well, but he's been phenomenal. He really has been phenomenal. Going back <clears throat> quickly to the Bulls, mm-hmm. as I see it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, I see the Eastern Conference as having a pretty clearly cut three through six that we don't know exactly who's going to be in what spot with Toronto, the Bulls, the Wizards, and the Nets. Who in that group do you think should scare the Bulls the most, and who was the most desirable opponent? Uh, the Wizards have scared the Bulls the most, not just because they beat them twice, but just they have the best, probably the best point guard of that group. I mean, Kyle Lowry's fantastic, but as you said, Wall's probably the only 
first team, second team, NBA, all NBA guy. And he's been playing very well against the Bulls. Their front court is playing very well against the Bulls. Ariza, they, they just they have a lot of weapons and they they have too many shooters to really make it an easy cover for the Bulls. I guess their pick and roll schemes. You saw Bosch got a lot of three pointers and that's he's a power forward. But I mean, Bradley Beal will get shots in that series and so will Wall. Like they can't stop both of them at the same time. So it, I would honestly believe that I would favor the Wizards pretty heavily in that series. And then. The most favorable matchup is probably the Nets. I don't know. The Raptors, I think, it's probably a push. The Nets, especially if Paul Pierce is hurt, it's just I would assume the Bulls have been that series. Noah's going to have too much. He'll be able to dominate the post, really. Garnett is playing better, but he's not what he was. And also those unconventional lineups that the Nets throw out there sometimes won't confuse the Bulls no. and they won't be a problem for them because they have the interior talent that they don't need to – to fake it, they can just out-muscle them if they're going to try to go small. Yeah, I mean, uh, Taj Gibson can guard Joe Johnson. Maybe not consistently for 30 minutes, but he can guard him if he switched on to him, or even if they play. Thibodeau will play Jimmy Butler at the four if he has to. He's done it before. If they want to play Joe Johnson at the four, Jimmy, Jimmy Butler is essentially the perfect guy to defend a guy like Joe Johnson. Is he, he's very methodical on his defense. He doesn't fall for those quick little fakes. He let, he waits for the guy to make his move and then reacts to it because he's so fast. Yeah, I don't think I don't think those, those lineups the Nets are running would, have much, would cause the Bulls much trouble. And the other factor in that, I was watching the, the Nets Raptors game yesterday, is that they're, they have a lot of trouble really running in that sense, because even when they're going small, they're not particularly fast. No, like and I said. And so they can't exploit anything in that way, against, especially against a team that's as disciplined and quality all around as the Bulls. Joe Johnson, if he plays the four, he's not exactly fast at this point. You know, Joe Johnson's not going to be beating any other guards in a foot race most of the time. We talked about the Wizards. The Wizards would be. I mean, if they played Ariza at the four, he's a much faster player. Beal and Wall get out on the break. You can beat the Bulls in transition. It, it takes some effort. You have to run, but you can get them. They're a pretty fast team, but they they just their defense is not set up for quick shots. Sometimes it's a it's a it's a blessing for the Bulls because you'll get a team that takes quick shots that doesn't hit them or can't hit them, and it really helps the Bulls out. But yeah. And defensively, the Wizards have talent there, and they've had some success. I mean, last year in particular, when they had Okafor, it was better. But they can force the Bulls into having tougher shots, and this is a team that can struggle in those circumstances if, the, if they're not getting the looks that they need to have a more reliable offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Gortat's not anything to write home about, but um, he could stop Carlos Boozer at the rim. I mean, if, if Nene comes back, Nene generally guards Noah, and those two would do some damage, I think. How do you think that the success, in given the adversity that the team has had, has affected the, let's just say, the long-term roster composition of this team? Do you think it has at all in terms of what, what they've done in with such a limited amount of guys? I think it has if the Bulls front office is actually serious about going after Carmelo Anthony because the, one of the biggest reasons they traded Luol Deng was to be able to afford potentially Nikola Mirotic coming over next year. Again, it's all this stuff about Carmelo, none of it's come from the Bulls themselves, so I assume that's still their plan. But I've noticed a lot of the uh, prognostications of if Melo comes to Chicago, just have completely thrown Mirotic out of the equation. And I don't think, if the Bulls are picking like that, then it has affected them. But I don't think their plans are really any different than they were two months ago. They're just doing what they can this year, trying to rebuild as quickly as they can without sacrificing their core, which is not a bad idea. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, and Miritich, I think people are sleeping on just how talented he is. I mean, he's pretty clear-cut to me that he's the best already already drafted guy who isn't playing in the NBA, and his skill set would fit really interestingly with the core that the Bulls have already. Well, yeah, he wouldn't have to... 
I would assume, at least next year, that Gibson would start if he's still here. And Miritich would come off the bench, and he'd be what Gibson is now. He'd be the guy to come in and take advantage of some matchups and shoot. Score. He's not a great athlete, obviously, but old system's not really based on athleticism, whatever's there. So, he, yeah, I think he'd be... His passing, I don't think, has really been talked about enough, and certainly nothing's, he's not going to be hurt by playing with Joe Kim Noah to learn how to pass a little better out of the high point. And his offensive role, particularly if he's coming off the bench, could be really big for the Bulls because he can kind of anchor in a way. I mean, he won't be running the offense, obviously, but he can be a reliable scoring option there, which is incredibly useful in the regular season when games often slog down and things like that. He seems to be able to score one-on-one a lot of times, I and mean, especially if he's if he's playing at the four. I'm not, I'm not sure if he could play center in the NBA. I think the Bulls would have to draft someone. I don't know, Montrez Harrell or somebody in the mid-late first round with one of their two picks, they're going to have uh, a defensive-minded center, backup center. would that Their uh, their front court would be very good, I assume. This is, of course, assuming that they do amnesty loser, which is still up for debate, I suppose. And that's exactly what I was going to get to, is it seems hard to figure out a feel for it, but my best read on it so far has been that if there was a clear-cut reason to amnesty him in terms of, let's say, that the benefit of the moratorium is that you have that period to reach out to guys, and if they could get somebody who would be a meaningful upgrade, that they would be willing to do it. But otherwise, considering the way that, that ownership has kind of run the ship so far, I don't think it's a definite that he's getting amnestied. Yeah, this also the question, would the Bulls pay him not to play basketball? That seems a little bit of an antithesis to their to their method. But we heard those those rumblings that seemed like they were coming from the Bulls front office that he was probably gone. So I think it's safe to assume, but it's certainly not a, not a foregone conclusion. And the other factor in that with the amnesty, amnesty <clears throat> discussion, and most of the amnesties we've seen have been for guys that, let's say, more disastrous contracts in that sense, is that I don't have a calibration yet on what the amnesty bid process would be like for him because it certainly seems like he would get one. You know, he's not one of those guys who would just wash out entirely. Oh, he goes somewhere. Then, you know, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, if you can get four or five million, let's say, off of that bill, then that would be a mm-hmm. huge benefit for them financially as well because then while you're still paying him not to play for you, you're paying him a whole lot less. Yeah. Yeah, his contract, it's interesting. Who else has, I mean, who else who still has the amnesty provision is talking about using it? It seems like there was that first wave of guys, and then for another year or so, there were some more guys, and now it's just sort of, it's there, but nobody seems that they're really interested in using it. The bowl, I mean, Booz is the only guy I've heard of it about it recently, last six months or so. Well, conceptually, depending on how you saw how you saw their team, Kendrick Perkins would be the other yeah, guy. Yeah. But that again gets into a very similar question as what to what we're dealing with the, with the Bulls is the question of would they be willing to pay him not to play for them and also spend the money that it would that would be the reason that you would cut them because you're not just going to pay them not to play for you. You're going to theoretically spend at least some of the money that you are that you're clearing from the books to get somebody else because mm. otherwise there's no point in using it. No. I assume, I think the Bulls, if Miritich wants more than the mid-level, I think they'll have to amnesty Boozer. I think that's what they're waiting for, is to, some word from him, from his people, about what exactly he wants as far as terms. I think once they get that news, they'll decide if they're going to amnesty Boozer or not. I mean, his contract does expire after next year, so it's not, it'd be a very Bulls thing to just hold on to him, but I, I assume Miritich is the deciding factor. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the mid-level would be there. And also the question with Miritich that runs along when you're dealing with guys that are dealing outside the rookie scale 
is going to be duration because yeah. it's possible that maybe maybe the exchange that they would work would be that he gets the mid-level or around there, but it's a shorter contract than if he was to sign, you know, to do that. So that, that gives him the flexibility of hitting free agency at a more reasonable age because when you're coming over after a couple of years, that is a factor in everything. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting scenario. I'm not... Like I said, it's not guaranteed one way or another. It's entirely possible if Mirage just doesn't come over this season. And if that happened, I assume they just keep loser. But I mean, maybe they'll make a run at Lance Stevenson. I haven't heard anything from the Bulls about that. I don't think anyone has. But it's an interesting prospect. Have you seen enough from Tony Snell to see if he's going to be a factor <clears throat> in terms of the rotation, let's say, next year or the year after? Yeah, even if Dunleavy stays through this contract, which is entirely possible, they ship him off this offseason to Christmas space. Snell seems to be one of the only guys on the team who can run the pick and roll effectively. So uh, he can do that. His shooting, will, his range will eventually reach the three-point line. He's really spotty. Uh, his defense hasn't been great, but he obviously knows he has the physical tools for it. So it's just Tom Thibodeau doesn't play rookies very much. He didn't play Jimmy Butler very much. And the next year, he immediately started playing him, and look what happened. But Snell should be fine. I assume he'll at least be a, a rotation piece for a while. What I saw, because I watched a fair amount of Snell when he was going into the draft, was a guy who could benefit immensely from good coaching going into his sophomore year. Because And the Bulls have, are a great team for that because... He can learn the system and do all that, and then if he can spend time really working on his game, particularly working on his shot this summer, he could maybe come in as a lower rotation player that then works his way into a high rotation player, which would be a huge thing for this team because, as we talked about, you know, all the upgrades that they want to make except for the draft picks will cost them money. And so if they can get somebody who's already on a deal and is already cheap, that would be huge for making a more competitive team. If they're really going to take a run at whatever the top of the East looks like next year because we don't know what's going on with Miami and Indiana is as much as good as they've been, they are still question marks, whether you're talking about Lance or you're talking about just how they're going to get better. Yeah, the, the Pacers are definitely hitting that wall. Like, if they don't win this year, they might be in trouble. If they don't keep Stevenson, Evan Turner is not an upgrade from Lance Stevenson in any way. It's similar to the Jimmy Butler dang thing, because Butler was the guy, now he's the guy who handles shoulders most of the load defensively, and He's just kind of asked to do a whole lot, and, and they could use another guy there to help him out, and hopefully Snell will be that guy. It's also possible they draft someone. Like I said, two first-round picks is it's not nothing. They can get something out of that. They've had success with late first-round picks in the past. So, Do you expect Thibodeau to be the coach of this team next year and, let's say, two years from now? Next year, yes. Two years, eh. I'll say yes at this point because I think he's in gender. I think he's – if he was going to – quote-unquote turn on the front office and just tank, which doesn't seem possible. He would have done it now. He would have lost games out of spite to show them. Yeah, but I, I think he, he's just going about his business, and I don't imagine if he if he's not going to be the one to sever the relationship, I don't imagine the front office will. They'll, they don't want their fans to turn on him that heavily. So then the logic would be that he would work there until his contract expires and then go wherever he wanted he'd to. Probably, to yeah, he'd probably be gone. But I assume his con he'll work. I, I'm assuming he'll work till his contract's out. He's not going to quit. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, and it seems like he really loves the guys who are playing for this mm -hmm. team, particularly Noah and Rose, too, and Rose and all those guys. And so to to kind of force his way out seems antithetical to that relationship. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to see a situation where, like what happened to Doc Rivers, where all the players that, he, except for Rondo, if we're for counting that, 
that he had a connection with were gone. And so then the question is, you know, what am I here for, especially if the team isn't going to be very good? I don't see the Bulls doing that. I don't see the I don't see any chance that they trade Noah. I don't see both for market reasons and for logic reasons any reason they would trade Rose. So if that situation doesn't present itself, then it would be the conflict with the front office getting so egregious that that would happen and that just seems unlikely considering where he is and everything. Yeah. If they were to trade Noah, I think he would probably follow out the door to wherever Noah went. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, if it's Noah stays, Tibbs stays. If Tibbs stays, Noah stays. I think that's at this point, that's how it, that's what it is. Do you happen to remember what year Noah becomes a free agent? Because I'm trying to figure out if those sync uh, up in terms of timeline. That's an interesting hypothetical as well, if that would if that would theoretically open up to, to maybe one lead to the other somewhere else, you know, in a situation like that. Yeah, I, I could see, like... It, you said it's not the same as the Doc Rivers situation. I originally, you know, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce were supposed to go to the Clippers with Doc Rivers, and that I think Thibodeau would be amenable to to sign and trade with Noah, and he goes with Noah to wherever he goes. But I think he, they're going to stick together for a while, is what I'm saying. I'm assuming they're going to they are like hand and glove those two. Do you think the front office is on that same page, or are they kind of, are they less committed to that than those two guys are to each other? I would definitely say they're less committed to that, but I think. Noah seems to fit exactly with what Bulls office, the Bulls front office wants everyone to think they are. So I, it's a tricky situation. A couple months ago, I would have told you that Thibodeau might be gone next year, but everything seems better when you win, and I think it's, that's what's happening. It just sort of it's all a back burner until – if this team had, had continued to lose a little bit, if they were four or five games under 500 and not four or five games over, I think you might hear a lot more about it. But for right now, I'm assuming they're just focusing on the playoffs. I know Thibodeau and Noah are. So when it all comes down to it, what do you expect as of now? And obviously we know things can change. What what seed do you expect the Bulls to get in the Eastern Conference? Four. I, I think they'll stick at four. I, the Raptors are playing really well, and the Bulls don't have the easiest schedule in the world the rest of the way. They play San Antonio tonight, then they play Houston. Those might both be losses. they still got a few Western Conference games to finish out. They have the next couple times, so I mean, there's some wins. I, I think they'll stick where they are. They seem to have peaked a little bit, and they might fall back to earth. A little while. Then again, this is Tom Thibodeau we're talking about. But I mean, yeah, they play the Thunder soon. They play the Pacers a couple times. Portland, but they, they have some tougher games on the schedule. Washington again, Minnesota. Yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting to see because they're a team that has definitely played well against some good teams, but they're just some nights that they just don't have enough firepower to just pull it out. Which in a way is a really strange parallel to Indiana because Indiana yeah. has those games too. Yeah, they do. Yeah, the difference is that Indiana. I think it's just a little more talented naturally. So those games are more rarer for them. The Bulls have gotten destroyed a few times this season. <laughs> Never seems to be on national television, so it's not a huge thing. But they've, I mean, they lost by 29 points to the Kings. They yeah, lost. I remember that. That was crazy. They lost. They lost. They lost the Clippers by 20 points both times, nearly. They got I mean, decimated by the Clippers. They lost 15 or 16 to Washington once, I think. And they just they've gotten handled a few times. I know that we're probably not going to see it, but I've been really intrigued by what a Toronto Bulls series would look like just because of how those two teams play and that Toronto traditionally plays two bigs, which is mm -hmm. interesting because a lot of the teams do that, do the other stuff. But I don't, sadly enough, I don't think we're going to see it because it seems incredibly unlikely that that would be a third round series. That's not going to be the <laughs> conference finals. And both those teams are playing too well for that to be the three six. Yeah, uh, the Nets and the Wizards would have to go on huge runs, I think, for that to happen. And I don't see – the Wizards are playing better. They're not as consistent, but they still will lose a couple in a row every once in a while. 
looking beyond the Bulls, what other storylines or little things are you looking forward to in the rest of the regular season? Uh, I mentioned the, the Suns. Seeing the Suns, I mean, they're the nine spot right now, I think. See if they can actually make the playoffs and what they would do. They would. You have to assume they terrify somebody in the first round. Portland, especially, but Oklahoma City, they just beat Oklahoma City, and it's. I think they'd be a weird. They're a weird matchup. They just play. They so actually Channing Frye's played fantastic. The Morris Twins have played very well. Plumley. They just have a lot of really athletic, fast guys. I know I mentioned Channing Frye, but you know, Bledsoe might be back. So you know, I, the Suns are fun. Really, the entire Western Conference playoffs should be fun. Building up to that, I, obviously the, the Heat and the Pacers, whichever who can see which who of them could, and the Thunder, who could right the ship, so to speak, and, and go on another one of their nine of eleven winning by 15 points a game runs with the Heat and the Thunder, especially like to have the Spurs. They're fun. They're, the Spurs are fun. They have crazy games from time to time. That's really it. The bottom of the East is not exactly exciting at this point. I think people for years have been underrating how entertaining the Spurs are. Because those early years when they played the Pistons in that finals and it was just gruesome. You know, there were those times and they've had that. Or when they, then they, or was that the the Cavs? I think it was the Cavs. They had that horrendous finals. They had had a finals against the Pistons and the Cavs. And the Cavs, and they were both terrible. The Pistons won, what, seven games at least. It was, there were seven pretty boring games. The Cavs won was a bloodbath, yeah. Yeah. And so people think of those Spurs teams as kind of thing, but they've been really entertaining for years now, and especially as they've gelled together. Mm -hmm. And what I find as a basketball fan really fun about them is that every year they're integrating new, interesting pieces. So this year it was Bellinelli and Patty Mills has come on. I mean, he played last year, but he's done really well. And I find that exciting to have a team that has really good talent and that is good every year, but they look different every year. And it's it's a very interesting thing, and I think Miami's interesting in that same realm because they add some piece that is more talented that you're looking to see how it's going to work, and Ray Allen, Greg Oden, Beasley. And as much as I like seeing teams come together, it's always fun to see how a new guy works into the mix. Yeah, uh, the Beasley thing is interesting for the Heat. I'm not sure how well it's going to work in the playoffs, but it's not like he's been lighting the world on fire, so he's just a role player. Bellinelli's been strangely fun. He was kind of a father last year with the Bulls. He had his good games, but he shot like 38% from the floor. He wasn't very good. Yeah, Bellinelli's been around for a while because I'm based in the Bay Area, so I remember when he was on the Warriors, is that what it always felt like with him was that you needed a system that understood what he did well and what he did badly. And it's always hard because he was never going to be good enough to be the type of guy that you would design a team around. So basically what it meant was just trying to find the right hole to put his peg in. And I think that the Spurs is a combination of that. I think that they've done a good job shaving off some of the weird things that he does in terms of the decisions he makes, but also putting him in the situation to succeed. And I'm somebody who always roots for those kind of guys because he's a very talented player and he tries and he tries and, and that, there are guys who don't fit everywhere and who can do that. And another guy like that for me is Thomas Robinson. I, I, I think that he'll work somewhere. I'm not sure if it's Portland. I, th- I feel like it's going to be somewhere. He'll get, he'll get moved around enough that it'll happen eventually. But yeah, I always find those guys compelling to watch and follow for the rest, for the rest of their careers. You know, you mentioned, I, I assume Thomas Robinson would fit well with the Spurs. I, I don't know. It, yeah. Bill and Ellie, it's just, it's a Spurs thing. They just, it's, it's what they do. They just Popovich, very, very readily identifies guys he think will work. Danny Green was one. Patty Mills was one. Bellinelli's been one. Jeff Harris has been one. He's been pretty good for them, for what he is. DL, obviously, was one. DL's been a revelation for them. He was horrible in Charlotte and that. 
And also the commitment that they made to keep on working Duncan and Splitter together for all those years when it wasn't working. And it's still been worse this year than it was last year. But the stability of that organization, and this is also an interesting lesson, or if you want to call it that, for the Bulls, is that they've been able to try things like that. And they've still been great. And the faith in the process and the faith in the people both buying the groceries and actually managing it on the floor has allowed them to take those kind of chances and without having the ill effects that a less cohesive and less faithful organization would have. Yeah, they're the, they're the model. The Spurs are the model with, with which you try to build your team. I think I think a lot of the friction between Thibodeau and the Bulls front office is from that. It's from him having his guys he wants and then not really trusting him all the time. Tony Snell apparently was one of those guys, and I don't think he's been a failed pick or anything, but I imagine... I don't really know what the Bulls, what the front office would do if they didn't have any sort of direction. Like they, they're so like their free agency decisions are all been. There's not really a pattern you can establish, I guess. But Thibodeau is that. I mean, I think he wants to be that, which is fair. I don't know why you wouldn't want to be. Yeah, and and it seems like you could have the balance where he says these are guys that I think would be good fits for the team, and then management has their own decision-making power, but definitely puts that into account. I think that might be the way to do it. Obviously, Popovich's relationship is different also because he came from the front office originally years Mm -hmm. and years and years Mm -hmm. ago. But that relationship is incredibly important because you, and I've seen this with Warriors coaches, they've run through three since I've been covering the team, that you run into this problem of, you know, if you're going to draft a guy, you're going to get him as a free agent. And then the team isn't the coach who is actually in charge of putting it on the floor isn't on the same page. That can lead to problems in a couple different directions. Yep. Like I said, it, Thibodeau is one of the guys he has. He has a very defined system. I think that's that's the problem that they've been having is that I'm not sure. I don't know if both front office believes that his system is the most successful they could. I, I think that's the problem, but it's interesting. I don't really know what else to say about it. Popovich is the model and. Yeah, and it would also be interesting to see with Thibodeau if we're talking about, you know, the com- the possible package with Noah is that what team has the ability to offer everything that would make sense for them? Like, you know, a situation yeah. where they'd have cap space but also have more control than they might have with the Bulls. And I would say the other factor in that is a commitment to spend if the team is good enough. Yeah. But I'm sure somebody could come forward because – they're both so incredibly good at what they do that if the Bulls aren't willing to give that to them, I think somebody else will. The question to me is whether the Knicks would have the wherewithal, and this again goes into Phil Jackson, to be able to clear the decks enough to make that to happen. Because it seems like it would have to be in a place that would be at least somewhat desirable to live, because I don't think they'd go to, let's say, a little bit up the road to Milwaukee to do it. And also there's the ownership question there. So you know, it narrows the pool a little bit. Uh, just just hearing your criteria there, I think Dallas would, would be a potential landing spot. Yeah. I, know, I know Mark Cuban would be very... I know he'd he'd spend like it seems like it depends on if I think if Dirk retires in the next couple of years let's say Dirk retires in 2016 which is a terrifying prospect but I guess it's possible I imagine he'd be interested in a quick rebuild like that getting a proven coach and in his player and I mean it just seems like Mark Cuban would would appreciate Dirk though I don't know the other one if everything struck out or not everything but enough struck out between now and then would be the Lakers depending on what Jimmy Buss wants to do but that's giving away a lot of power in that sense you know that if you're going to do that for a coach and we've already seen some issues with that but my thought on that is that obviously the Bulls core Noah and Thibodeau wouldn't be moving this year and so the idea would basically be if they strike out this year then a guy like Thibodeau would have more leverage to say 
hey, look at what I can do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think those are the two best options because a lot of the other teams just have too much tied up, you know, mm-hmm. places like the Warriors and the Heat and the Nets. The Nets have a whole no bunch of garbage. Yeah, I mean, they have not only, yeah, no assets and they have a ton of money on the books, like our friend Joe Johnson that we talked about earlier, that you can't clear and you can't amnesty and anything like that. Yeah. So it's going to be fascinating because the Bulls are in a situation where I think they have the pieces that are good enough to be a legitimately special team, but they have this downside risk, which is really fascinating because, you know, let's say Noah leaves and they get no compensation for him. That's going to be a really hard situation to, to fix in the long term. Yeah, it's it, it's asset. I don't know. Outside of it being a depressing uh, potentiality for me to think about, I, I just don't really understand. There's only there's two or three teams that could do it. So it's interesting, but I'm not really sure it's going to happen. I think it's at this point we're probably, this goes against things I was saying earlier, but we're probably at least well over 50-50 them just staying. But Noah just finished, finishing his career out, and if that happens, I assume Thibodeau will stay. So. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways you could argue that that's the best case scenario for the league because Chicago is a, a great location. Mm-hmm. They have an identity. They have also having Derrick Rose, if he can come back to anything close to what he was his MVP season, they have a lot of talent. They have a great fan base. And everywhere else, it would be a giant question mark. I like having this Bulls team, you know, that knowing what to expect and just being able to know, like, when you're one, you're watching them, okay, this is going to be a team that tries really hard, that's going to put bruises on the other team. And that also serves a role in the playoff structure as well. And I think it's, I think it's good to have them the way that they are. Yeah. Obviously, I'm biased in saying this, but the NBA obviously would want the Bulls to be good. They want the Knicks to be good. They want the Lakers to be good, the Celtics, all these big market teams. Interestingly enough, most of them are bad right now, which is an interesting thing for Adam Silver to step into. But uh, you you have to assume the Lakers will write things. The Celtics will. The Knicks, you have to assume they won't, I, I guess. But they are still a big draw. It's interesting. This is where things like the lottery come into play, because the lottery, in many ways, is that equalizer. You don't really know what's going to happen with it, so it's entirely possible the Lakers and Celtics get the top two picks, and in three years, they're in the finals again. I mean, the Bulls will they'll do what they'll do. It's it's really the thing that really, I think, holds them back more than more than anything the league would do or anything they would. It, it's, it's their own insistence on spending money like their Oklahoma City or Indianapolis. Like, they don't have the money to spend when they do, which is has always been sort of the Achilles heel of this team. I mean, the most unfortunate thing about the Mello rumors is that he would be the first major free agent they've signed, maybe ever. So there's not really a track record for it, unlike the Lakers or the, or the Knicks even, if they re-signed him. And he, you don't have the benefit of it, him being a hometown guy or anything no. like that, or even a guy with Midwest roots. You know, that was a more interesting thing for me with LeBron, was that while LeBron wasn't from Chicago, he was from a whole heck of a lot closer than any of the cities that Carmelo could say he hails from, you know, because his, his history was all on the East Coast. <laughs> One of his several hometowns. Yeah. Um, I, and I'm not sure if that's a real, if it really are those sort of benefits. Hometown benefits certainly exist, but like I'm sure nobody's going to care. Somebody from Chicago isn't going to not play in Los Angeles if, because they're from Chicago, I guess. But Rose has said he wants to be a bull for the rest of his career, and I assume he will be, however long his career lasts, but... There's no benefit there for the Bulls with Melo, obviously. Also, the really interesting part of what he said mm. recently was the idea that he would be willing to leave money on the table for the right situation, which Knicks fans sounded happy about, but I think should be terrifying <laughs> to them because there is no way that's going to be the best situation. There, you know, if, if the only thing they have to offer is a desirable city and the most money. 
And if you take one of those off the table, then you're relying on him and his wife, presumably, being in love with New York. And while that's certainly possible, I don't, I'm not in his head. I'm not in his decision-making circle. That's dangerous because he's at this situation, and I think we're going to be dealing with this also with Kevin Love when he becomes a free agent and a series of other guys that haven't had the team success on the NBA level but have internationally. Yeah. They're going to have this itch. Yeah. And, and the Bulls have have that advantage also theoretically maybe with Kevin Love depending on what the Lakers do is that they can say hey if you come here you're going to win and that has to be their pitch and I think that gets into your concern about ownership as well is because that's a situation that actually a series of different teams are dealing with now I would say the Lakers are in this as well though obviously they're willing to spend it's that are there people in the front office and I would say on the sidelines that I can say that they're worth me committing the next four to five years, which might constitute my prime, the rest of my prime, yeah. too. It and seems like, that's, it yeah. seems like uh, there's a growing perception among players that the Bulls front office is not all in on it. I mean, Carl Foreman and John Paxson are doing their jobs. They're doing what they can with what they're given. It's not really their fault. And it's not really – I mean, it's it's Reinsdorf. Do you, if you're Kevin Love, do you look at that team – do you look at the Bulls and say that this team is obviously more committed to winning than Minnesota? I couldn't say you – I don't know if you could say that. They have more capital with which to work, but I don't know if they really – if you're really – I mean, Minnesota's been trying. A lot of that could be determined by how they handle Thibodeau, you know. Yeah. If, they, if, if he says, I want more control, but, you know, we'll keep this together, and they say, nah, then that would send a big message. Yeah. And, yeah, they're, they're in that situation where reputation is both a – short-term and a long-term thing. And I think that a series of different teams need to think about is, you know, that once you get that mark on you, it affects not a generation of players, but a a pack of years of guys that just say, if you're not first, you know, if you're not number one on the list, then in a lot of ways it doesn't matter. And so if that stain can keep you off the top line for the top guys, that's a big problem. Because then you have to drop them. You have to land a Derrick Rose. You have to land a Joachim Noah. And you certainly can. That, That happens. But yeah, it's, uh, it's hard. The Thunder, interestingly, they're I think they're in that boat. They can't really I don't know if they're really gonna I mean they don't have the money to, but I don't know if they did. How they handle the Harden situation, I'm not sure if they could really attract any any major guys to come play with them. Uh, and what's it, what's annoying is that the Bulls sort of go about business as if they're already that. As if they already have no other options, which is not ideal. The Rockets are a team that I think are the opposite that Guys know that Maury has his blessing. He can do what he wants, and he wants more stars. So I could see a guy like, uh, I, I don't know, they have no cap space, but I mean, like, in a vacuum, a guy like if Bosch left the heat, he'd go there. You know, I think he'd, he'd appreciate it. But, you know, like, I think that's the sort of the untalked about factor in a lot of these free agent decisions is, I mean, obviously, cap space is the big one. You can't sign these guys. And it's more than competitiveness. It's it's sort of culture. And, and I'm not yeah, sure the Bulls have that culture. Yeah, it's being worth it. And what's interesting to me is that a lot of the high-profile teams have not done a great job of putting in the people to instill that faith. Obviously, we'll have to see what the Knicks do, but the Lakers, you know, their ownership now has that question mark with how they've handled various things Mm -hmm. from Pau Gasol to even to Kobe with giving him that huge extension without seeing how he came back from his injury. If it were me, you know, if I'm sitting there this summer and I'm, I'm a guy, let's say Carmelo again, and you go, okay, well, it's going to be Kobe and I for the next two years. And then after that, it's going to be myself and cap space. Yeah. That's 
terrifying. Yeah. So if you're getting into those situations, obviously the Nets have done a whole series of things and they have their own problems. So you're sitting there, to me, if you're sitting there and you're the Bulls, all you have to say is, we're the only adults in the room. And that's not a hard pitch to make if you have the authority to make it. And it's frustrating to me, and I'm not even in it at all. I have no vested interest in the Bulls being good. That they that they haven't done that yet is, it's, yeah. in a way, it's sad. In a way, it's frustrating because all of the other teams either are capped out like the Nets and the Clippers are, or they just can't get their act together. Yeah, the Lakers, I think, are the exception to this because you just you just assume that they will, that they'll they'll get a couple guys and they'll be back into it. But I mean, yeah, it is it is definitely more questionable than it was two three years ago. The Celtics. I think the Celtics have that, they have that grace period. They're allowed to be bad. You know they're going to compete again. So I think the Celtics are a team to watch for this, but uh, it's interesting. I don't know. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Yeah. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Brian Schroeder for coming on. I really enjoyed talking with him, and it's good to talk about the Bulls. I think they're one of the better stories in the league, especially considering how well they've played without the players that we all thought were the key players at the start of the year. You can read Brian at Hardwood Paroxysm and Bulls by the Horns. That's bullsbythehorns.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter at C-O-S-M-I-S. Thanks again. It was a fun episode, and I'm looking forward to next week as well, which is going to be an NCAA tournament preview. Real GMs, college basketball, savant. Dan Hanner is definitely going to be on, and I'm working on getting an NBA draft guest as well, so you'll get both angles on it. And as I've said in previous weeks, looking forward to the Eliminated series, which is going to start in a few weeks once teams actually get eliminated. If you have suggestions for guests, for team-specific guests, it would be great to send them to me, which is daniel.larue at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. And we're going to start with the teams that get knocked out first, so if you have people for the Lakers, the Celtics, the Kings, all that kind of stuff. That'd be great. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Really excited for what's coming down the pike, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.